Welcome, everybody. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, will you stand with me as we start our morning by um, our call to worship, which comes from Psalm 86 and is a reminder that uh, as we come before God, uh, we, we aren't coming with something to offer him, but we come poor and needy, and he meets us there. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the
Bethany Church. My name is Neil Elam. I'm one of the elders here. I just wanted to welcome you all here. Saw a theme in David's songs this morning, this idea of grace uh, and paying for our debts. And I love that line of where he stood beneath this debt that we can never afford. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes this world can get to me. And uh, it can impact how I think even when I'm reading the Bible. You know, I can read a, a verse like Matthew 11, 6 that says, Blessed is the one who is not offended uh, by me. Jesus is talking to his own uh, disciples. And I can take that and say, well, am I offending people? And I start wanting to pay my own debt. But that's not the gospel. Uh, the gospel is Jesus paying it for us. Uh, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I just uh, I thank you that you sent the Son to pay a debt that I could never afford. Uh, that it's by his grace and by his blood that we have, we can claim eternal life. And I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, guard our hearts, uh, keep our hearts focused on the gospel, focused on the word, and not to slip into worldly thinking where we think that we could somehow uh, help out the cause and, and pay our debts for ourselves, because that's not the message of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is that you paid it all on the cross. And we just thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Spirit, we pray you would be with us this morning and help us get your message. 
Morning, everybody. You're probably wondering why I'm wearing a mask this morning. Uh, we have uh, somebody in our house test positive this morning, and four of us are negative, myself included, and no symptoms. Uh, so I just thought it'd be courteous. I'll wear it today and probably slip out pretty quick after service. I don't do a lot of close talking with you, uh, just to be courteous to you. As I said, I'm tested negative and have no symptoms, but I uh, just want to be careful. Well, a few things to announce this morning uh, in our worship service. You can see them in your worship folder or on the screen behind me. The first one is this. We want you to be aware that this week our kids are going to, our elementary school kids are going to summer camp. Uh, summer camp this week. Do we go back? Is it, which order are we? There we are. Summer camp. We want to encourage you as they go to Canyon View this week just to be in prayer for them. Be in prayer for their safety, but also for their own spiritual growth. Maybe even new faith for a child in our church for the first time. So I want to encourage you uh, this week just to be aware of that. And pray for the heat, too. It's going to be a really hot week, so I want them to stay cool and, and healthy and safe out there. And transportation, too. Next, we want to let you know about a back to school backpack drive. That's kind of hard to say. Back to school backpack drive uh, that the Campy Center is doing. I think we did this last year as well, but as we come to the school year, our church likes to partner specifically with the Canby Center for certain resources. They've asked our church to gather backpacks this year. I even saw uh, Freddy's has got them on the side there for sale this week. I don't know if they still are, but they were like 20% off or something. But uh, grab them there if you want to give one. Bring them to the gathering place. There's a new blue bucket right by the welcome counter out there. You can drop them in there, and, but they're hoping by August 14th so they can get those backpacks, I think probably fill them with school supplies to get them to kids. And then finally this morning, we want, just want to remind you as we come to a time of giving back in our service that uh, some of you have already decided and switched over to giving online, but we want to just let you know how easy it is in your worship folder. Actually, if you don't have the app, on the left side, there's a little QR code. You can scan that with your camera, and that'll take you right to get on the church app. But once you're in the church app, it's as simple as pushing the give button and setting up a one-time or regular gift. We just want to let you know about that as it helps with uh, our giving. Um, again, welcome to all of you, and a special welcome to those who might be visiting today. I see a couple new faces out there. We have something called a Next Step card. You'll find it on the chair back in front of you. If you'd fill it out today for us, we'd love for you to do that just to get us a little information about yourself. After the service, you can take it out to our welcome counter in the gathering place and exchange it for a Bethany Church water bottle. It would be our gift to you uh, just for being our guest today. Well, that's all for announcements. And Neil prayed for us, so we're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids. At this time, kids, you can find your teachers in the back. If you're new to Bethany, you want to walk with them to find their teacher. Thank you so much to our teachers. Your service to our kids is not just child care. It's forming and shaping disciples of Jesus Christ. So thank you uh, for that.
This morning we will um, be starting in the book of Matthew, going to the New Testament, and we will be reading from Matthew 11, the end of the chapter, verses 20 to 30. And we have two very different passages here where we see definitely both the justice of God and the love of God. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice. Well, we had a video sermon all ready to go, too. I recorded it last night just in case, um, but I get to be here. I'm so glad we don't have to show a video of me. So those even online be watching a video of a video. Uh, you're, we're here, and I get to be here today, and I'm so glad because we get to start a new summer series today called The Heart of Jesus. Let me pray for us as we begin. Jesus, open our hearts to your heart today. Open our minds to your word today. Give us what we need to prosper, to flourish, to grow in obedience and love in the gospel of Jesus Christ as we find your heart today and through this series. We pray that you would reveal it to us, Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. So as I said, our new series called The Heart of Jesus, we're using our July resource, Gentle and Lowly, as a springboard for the series, and we got a few more of those out there. I think we sold out last week. I read through this book, Gentle and Lowly, by Dane Ortland, a year or so ago with some of the men in our frontline book group, and we loved it. And it looks at the questions like this. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? What is his disposition towards sinners and sufferers? What comes most naturally to Jesus? What do you think? I'm convinced we need a series like this. It was Anne Voskamp in her new book called Waymaker who told a story of a conversation that she had with a Bible professor, a Bible professor of hers, and, and she asked this question of him. Why do we end up living more lost, far distant from God than in communion, deeply attached to him. And she was asking that question as a, as a Christian. Have you felt that before? The more of your life feels far from God, even though you love him and trust him and you believe with your mind in him. And his response, this Bible professor to her, really challenged me and formed the motivation behind this series. He said to her this, I think it's because the metaphors we use to understand God have shrunk the reality of who God is and who we are with him. He went on to say this, the primary way we have come to understand God is legal, judicial, judge. Now, that's right, and that's true. The professor went on to say that, and we know from a passage like Colossians, take a look at it, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal, there it is, demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And we don't want to downplay this at all in our Christian life. It's the gospel, the historically objective fact of Jesus paying the legal debt for sinners, for you. And forgiving us in the sin and death that we had to God by, for breaking his legal commands. It's the gospel. But that's only half the story. The professor went on to say this. Here's the quote. You can see it behind me. He says, this is truth. That's the legal demands that we just read in the, the gospel. And yet there's truly more to the story. If your only biblical metaphor for the reality of the gospel is that your wrongs have brought you into court before a holy God... Who pays the price and makes things right when you exit that court of law? 
you may not know the way forward. The way of Jesus is to live in intimate communion with God. Now, the gospel does offer legal exoneration, but it also should pull us into the heart of Jesus, pull us into his deepest, the deepest resources of his heart. Is there a disconnect for you between your profession of faith and obedience? Is there a disconnect between your faith and your feelings? Is there a disconnect between your talk and and your walk? Or do you feel discouraged today, cynical today, like like God is your, your cosmic step counter and you're running up a downward, endless staircase or escalator? It's possible you've forgotten the way to actually live connected to God. And the way we do that is to live attached to his heart. But what if you've only in your life spent a lot of time thinking about Christ, his doing, what he's done, which is important, his doing and and his teaching, but you've really not thought about who he is as a person in his heart, the heart of Jesus. And this series is for you. And actually, it's for all of us. So today we're going to look at the, pl- the one place where the Bible describes Jesus' heart. The one place, and we're going to look at it and figure it out by answering five questions. So get your outline out, have your Bibles open to Matthew 11. Here's our first question. What is the heart? What is the heart? If we're going to look at the heart of Jesus, then we must understand what the Bible means when it speaks of the heart. It's way more than just the muscle on the leftish side of your body that pumps blood to your extremities. It's way more than that. And it's more than just your emotions, as Disney would have you believe, right? It's more than that. Now, surely this is part of our heart, our emotions. And the emotions are a gift from God, and they're meant to help us process and live as embodied creatures that image God. So they're important, but the heart is not, it's not less than our emotions, but it's also so much more. You know, the Bible speaks of the heart over 900 times. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot of times. Over 900 times. But most of the time, actually, almost all the times when it speaks about the heart, it's talking about our hearts. Here's a couple of verses. Matthew 11, uh, or excuse me, Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So our heart uh, treasures things, grasps them, holds on to them, desires them. Here's another one, Matthew 12, a chapter from ours, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your words, your thoughts are connected to our hearts as well. Well, the answer to question number one is this. What is the heart? When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not just our emotions, but it's the core of who you are. It's the core of who I am, of who we are. The heart is the center of who you are. You could call it your uh, causal core, like the central processor of your computer or the engine in your tractor. You pick. It reveals the real you. 
It's the center of emotions and wills and, de- and our desires and our, our longings and our thoughts. It's the collective you when the Bible speaks of heart. It's your collective you. And it's what drives and controls and shapes your life, your heart. And this isn't just adults that have them. Kids, you've got them too. Our youth in here, your heart drives you towards something, and it's more than just the, the muscle beating that helps you play basketball. Your heart is driven towards something. That's why Solomon would say something like this from Proverbs 4. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Watch it. Be observant. Think about it. For from it flow the springs of life. And whatever sits on the throne of your heart, the Bible even talks about in other places, is what you worship. What you worship. It's where you find purpose in life. That's what it is, this causal core collective you. Well, if that's our first question, what's the heart? What's our second one? Here's our second one. How does Jesus describe his heart? How does Jesus describe his heart? And if it's this collective center of who we are, that description of Jesus' heart is pretty important. Charles Spurgeon was the first person to point out that while the Bible speaks a lot of our hearts, it only speaks of Jesus' heart in one place in the entire Bible, in the entire scripture, entirety of Scripture. One place it speaks of Jesus' heart. So, so this matters, and this passage in Matthew 11 is really important because it's the one place. If I was to ask you to describe what ignites Jesus, I want you to think about what you would say or if somebody asked you that. Like what drives him? What's most natural? What comes most naturally to Jesus? What flows most freely from Jesus as you think of him in your mind? What, what would you say? Or if I asked you a follow-up question, how do you think of Jesus' disposition towards you? Is it rejoicing over you with singing, as we heard from Zephaniah a couple weeks back at our baptism service? Rejoicing over you with singing? Is that how you think of Jesus' heart? Or is it more like that cosmic step counter, like that Fitbit some of us wear to keep track of our steps and his voice says to you, yeah, you're lazy. Is that all you can muster up? You're worthless. 17 steps, you've had more bites of ice cream today. And maybe you think, maybe his heart is capricious or judgmental or quick to anger or indifferent. That is not the way he describes his core of who he is. Listen to verses 28 through 30 again. You can follow if you got it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first word Jesus uses to describe his heart is gentle. Jesus' heart is gentle. So as you fill that one in, remember, we're not talking so much here about what he has done. Although you can't separate his actions from his being, we can't do that, and they're bound together as our being and our doing are bound up together. But we are talking more about his being here, who he is. 
The Greek word that's used for gentle here occurs only three other times in the Bible. Matthew 5, 5, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, the meek will inherit the earth. That's the word. So it's a, it's a meekness. Matthew 21, 5, the words used to describe how Jesus entered the city. Do you remember his triumphal entry? He's coming to you humble, it was translated there, and mounted on a donkey. And in 1 Peter, the same word is translated. Uh, he's talking to wives to cultivate a gentle spirit. I mean, there could have been so many positive ways to describe Jesus' heart. Wise, powerful, loving, sacrificial, giving, holy, and all those would be accurate. And he is those things. Or maybe you've assigned some negative ones to his heart as I've asked you that question. How do you think of Jesus? Maybe you have thought of him a bit harshly or demanding or, or critical or maybe just aloof, aloof in your life. Like, where is he? Is he like that, that, that cosmic landlord that turned up the earth and wound it up and then just disappeared and stepped back like many think? Is his heart aloof from you? Well, he's none of those things. He is the most understanding, gentle, open-armed person that's ever lived. He isn't critically counting your steps on your Fitbit. He's open-armed and gentle and meek. It's his heart. His heart. It's the one place in the Bible where it's described. It's gentle. The second word used to describe his heart is lowly. Jesus' heart is lowly. What's that mean? We don't really use that word. Lowly. It generally means that he's humble in heart. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the, the proud, but gives grace to the humble, the lowly. Paul tells us not to associate with the proud in Romans 12, but the lowly. And it refers not necessarily, when Jesus uses about his own heart, not necessarily to the fact that he's got a humble virtue, though he does and, and did and does, but the state of his life, it refers to more, was a downward trajectory from the time he was born, really. It's the way of the cross. Humble birth and yet descent, and continuing from that descent to the humiliation of the cross. It's the way of the cross, lowly. And Jesus calls us to follow him on this unimpressive, humble path. His circumstances were humble and lowly, not powerful impressive and, and impressive in his first coming. Dane Ortland, in his book, the book Gentle and Lowly, describes what this means about Jesus. He says, lowly refers to the socially unimpressive, those who are not the life of the party, but rather cause the host to cringe when they show up. Ever felt that way? <laughs> the point, though, in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he's accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Have you experienced him like that? Are you continuing to experience him like that in your walk? Or is he cosmically counting your steps? 
Is that how you view Jesus' heart? Approachable, Ortland says. Would you describe him this way? Do you pray to him this way? Approachable. Do you worship him this way? Approachable. Do you know what kind of comfort it would be to your and my life if, if these two words were not only the center of Jesus' heart, but that we believed them in the center of our heart about him? It would transform us entirely. It would transform our culture, our church. So that's question two. What is the heart of Jesus like? We answered it with gentle and lowly. Actually, he answered it. Let's go to our third question. What is the heart of Jesus for? This is where our question gets a bit more difficult. Or who is the heart of Jesus for? Not what, excuse me. Who is the heart of Jesus for? It gets a little more difficult here. As Alice even said, this passage is interesting. It shows not only the justice of God, but the love and mercy of God. You might think it sounds nice or quaint or hopeful that Jesus is gentle and lowly. But what if he asked the same of you to be gentle and lowly? That's a different story, isn't it? That's a different ask, isn't it? For you and I to be gentle and lowly. Would those be the two words that first describe your heart, or if you were to ask those that live closest with you, hey, give me, what's the core of who I am? Would they say gentle and lowly? I don't think they would about me. My family watching at home. (laughs) And, and, And here's another one. What if we don't like the way he describes the people that he came for? The answer is in verse 28. We might not like this description. He comes, the heart of Jesus is for those who are weary and burdened. It's the answer to this question three. Who's the heart of Jesus for? It's for those who are weary and burdened. There's a place in Exodus 5 where Moses is called to go and speak to Pharaoh and to ask him to free the people. And this description of what's happening to the people at that time, the Israelites, as they're enslaved in Egypt, made me think a lot about this passage today and what Jesus even says. The king of Egypt said to Moses and Aaron as they came and said, hey, free, these, free God's people. He said, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens, he said to them. Interesting, isn't it? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens, he said to Moses and Aaron. He went on to say in chapter 5, You just keep saying, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. He said, Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. You see, God's people from the very beginning, back even when they were enslaved in Egypt, have been under, under heavy burdens. For them, literally, it was heavy work. They had to go find straw for themselves as Pharaoh said, ah, we're not giving them the straw anymore. They want to get out of here? No way. Double the work. You're re-freeing them, Moses, from their burdens. You're giving them rest. What are you doing? Weary and burdened, the slide says. This is what actually qualifies us for connection to Jesus, being weary and burdened. Identity in Jesus weary and burdened. Verse 28 says it. 
Ours is a culture of self-sufficiency, isn't it? Of burning the candle at both ends, of productivity and time-saving technology. But have you ever asked the question, what are we doing with all that time we've saved from the technology? Scrolling our news feed and Instagram, right? We're a culture of doing and accomplishments and resumes and, and trophies and, and, and accolades of health, wealth, and beauty, and then enough energy to have the perfect garden and lawn and, and kids and Instagram feed. That's our culture. Jesus says he comes for the weary and burdened. Like those Israelites under the heavy burden of a work expectation. Weary, when Jesus describes that word, it's both a state of body and soul. Have you felt weary before? Body and soul. It's different than the gratification we get after a, a hard day's work, that kind of tired. That's good. That can be a good thing. We're not, he's not saying lazy. We should be lazy then. That's, but he's saying those who are weary, it's different than that hard day's work. Ecclesiastes calls it weariness of the flesh or, or, or bone tired, you might say, in our language. It's what comes with being worn out on life and maybe the despair or anxiety or maybe sometimes even hopelessness that comes with being weary. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's who he came for. He calls those and Matthew writes that Jesus says, and chooses those and to reveal himself to those who are weary, burdened with, with, with heavy loads. Like the mom who just can't do one more load of laundry, let alone carry her husband's burdens. The dad whose pay cut means the family won't make budget this month. The high school boy who just wishes a girl would notice him. He calls those weighed down with burdens of life, with sorrow, with sin. When I was in college, in junior college, I took some acting classes. I think God actually used them to make me get up in front of people because I quit speech class twice in junior college before I ever passed it, which is weird that I took acting classes but quit, would quit speech class. I don't know what that means. Maybe I like to say somebody else's words, not my own. Um, but... I took a couple of acting classes in college, and we had an assignment one class. I think it was around, actually, Halloween time in October. And we were told we had to dress up as a character for class. Some of this would be your worst nightmare for some of you. It kind of was for me, too. It turned out to be one of my worst nightmares. Uh, we had to dress up as a character of our own choosing. And then the assignment would be to show up to character or class in character and then be in front of the class and get interviewed. And they, anybody could ask you any question, and you had to answer it in character. I would never do that now. It was ridiculous, but I chose this character that needed this elaborate face paint. I didn't know a professional makeup artist, so I had a girl from my class come over to my house just to help me out. It was a disaster. <laughs> and it smudged, it didn't look right, I was a mess, but I wasn't looking in the mirror when she did it. And then she said, well, I'm done. I think I got it. And I, I turned and I looked in the mirror. And, I, and when she finished, I, I knew and looked in the mirror. It was a disaster. But of course, the first thing I said was, do I look all right? <laughs> do I look okay? Of course I didn't look all right. I look more like a clown than anything else. <laughs> there was no way I looked all right. It's, I mean, it's a funny story to me today. But at the time, it was a little bit overwhelming. 
But isn't that the question of all our hearts? Do I look all right? Do I look okay? Do I seem okay? Do I seem all right? I know I'm finite limited. I know my vulnerability, my weariness, but I just want to know, do I look okay? We pretend, put on masks or horrible costume makeup like I did. To, to, to make it seem like we've got it all put together. I mean, I was a 19-year-old man with makeup smudges all over my face. Of course I wasn't okay. <laughs> of course I didn't look all right. I was hoping to pass for something I wasn't. Jesus came for those who know they don't look okay. And, and, and those who don't try and hide it. And he's gentle and lowly with those who don't. But he's not for everyone. Jesus is not indiscriminately gentle and lowly. Did you hear that in the verses? Look at 20 and 22 again. Let's read those again. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. That's key. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He's not indiscriminately gentle and lowly, is he, when you hear something like that? He's coming in judgment someday again, not gentle and lowly, but coming, he says it right there, the same one who says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, a few moments before will say, whoa, watch out. Watch out if you don't repent. He says, I'm coming in judgment for those cities, those places that saw, that heard, that saw my, big, my great works and didn't repent. Those who didn't acknowledge their weariness, burdens, and sins. So it's not indiscriminately, even though it's his heart. He didn't come, Scripture says, for the righteous. He came for the soul sick and the weary. That's why he came. The wise and the proud of this world, the Chorazin and the Bethsaida and the other cities, they, they don't see their need of Jesus or those that live that way. The powerful of this world hide their burdens well, and Jesus then hides from them. But look down to verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise, that's what I just said, and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Not those who are immature. Not those who get goofy and smear chocolate over their face. But those who really know they're needy. Who knows they're more needy than a baby that has to be held in a father or mother's arm. Than a child who's waiting for his next meal. Or just waiting to be tucked in. Or for a glass of water because she's thirsty. That's what Jesus means when he says childlike. Grace comes to those who God reveals it, Jesus says. Those like little children. Those who admit their neediness, burdens, and weariness. Here's what that means. You don't need to clean up your act to come to Jesus. You don't have to clean up to come to him or make over your sins and your wounds and plaster some costume makeup on. You don't have to do that. 
your burden and weariness is what qualifies you to come. That's what qualifies you to come. His rest is not a transaction, something we earn. It's a gift to the childlike in response to those of the fourth question. So who's it for? Weary and burdened. How do we experience then the heart of Jesus? How do you continue to experience it maybe a first time coming to him? Or how do you experience his heart ongoing? And the answer is that Jesus is gentle and lowly, as we said, not to indiscriminately, but to those who come to him. Jesus says, come to me in the passage. And that's in the coming to him, not just initially. We can talk about that in the church, and we do, and maybe today you need to come to Jesus for the first time. And I encourage you to. And I invite you to. He's gentle. He's lowly. He loves you. He made you. He's open-armed and accepting. But it's not just initially. It's over and over and over and over again, coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's the life of a Christian. Martin Luther said that was like the daily thing. The daily thing was the life of repentance and faith. And when we do that, we experience again his gentle and lowly heart. Because when was the last time you came to Jesus to repent and that you heard his voice say, not this time. One time too many. Now, that's not an excuse for our sin. But when was the last time you heard that? Ah, today is an off day for me. I'm closed today. Yeah, we're closed. Come back tomorrow. You've never heard that. I know you've never heard that. Maybe your mind thought you heard that. But if Jesus is gentle and lowly, that's not what, that wasn't his voice. Over and over again. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians, he almost sounds crazy. Actually, Paul sounds crazy a few times, doesn't he, in the New Testament? He, was, he was, wasn't one to pull punches. But he almost sounds crazy, at the very least radically countercultural, when he talks about asking, remember he asked God to remove this thorn in the flesh? We don't know what it was. Maybe it was weak eyes, some have surmised, or uh, an ailment. But he said, God, oh, Jesus, he asked a few times, remove this thorn in my flesh. And Jesus said, basically, no, I won't remove the thorn. But here's what he said to him. But he said to me, Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul boasts in his weaknesses. He almost delights here in his weaknesses and hardships. Because it's an admitting our weaknesses. In that place, when we do that, that's when the engine of Jesus' gentle heart fires up for us. Fires up for you. It's where, it's where, it's where grace moves into the situation. And this isn't the occasional way he acts towards sinners. No. Or the weak and the burdened. No, this is how he is. This is who he is. Gentleness and lowliness and grace is who he is. Or as Ortland said in his book, he said, Jesus, he can't ungentle himself towards his own any more than you and I can change our eye color. It's who we are. It's who Jesus is. I was reading a story 
in, uh, her name is Tish Harrison Warren. This great book she has called Prayer in the Night. If you struggle at nighttime, which many people do, when sun sets, nighttime comes, you know it's time for bed and maybe everybody else in the house will be asleep and you'll be laying there wide awake. If you struggle with that, this is a great book. It's the subtitles for those who work or watch or weep. And in this book, she shares about her best friend in college confessing his most secret sin to their pastor, admitting his burden, as we've just been talking about. He shared his most shameful moment, his his dark story, and what the pastor said, how the pastor responded, is how I wish every pastor in the history of the church would have ever responded, (laughs) but they haven't. But it transformed his whole life life, this one response. He said to the young man after admitting his sin, he said, we need you in our church. Do you know why? It's not in spite of your struggle, but it's because of it, he said to him. It's because of it. You see, the weakness he had and sin were the darkest backdrop against which God's grace and tender heart and gentle forgiving heart would shine out. And in his ongoing life of coming to Jesus in repentance and faith would encourage and and bless the church. That's why the pastor said it. As Christ's power and and grace would be made perfect in that young man's weakness. So he said, we don't need you in spite of your struggle, but because of it, we need you. Do you hear how radical that is? We need you because of your weakness. Not in spite of it. Do you see why it's important in the, that we live together in community, growth groups, DNA groups, Sunday school for kids, fellowship out there? Do you see why we need each other in community as we come to Jesus? This is a huge part of discipleship, of being an apprentice of Jesus, we've called it. If we keep our weaknesses hid from each other and behind horrible costume, makeup, or wherever we hide them, we miss the opportunity to see God work in each other. We miss the opportunity where God will be shown to each other in the mirror of another person's life when we see their weakness, when we see their burdens, and yet we see God work not in spite, but because of those weaknesses. That's a countercultural message of grace. Now, I don't mean here the type of This has become kind of popular in the church, messiness and weakness. It's kind of become trendy, actually, on many Christian social media pages. I don't mean that kind of messiness or the term that's been used a lot is brokenness. Like our imperfection becomes a virtue because we're just, I'm just so authentic. I'm so real. You don't know that. I'm so real. Like that kind of brokenness. And a lot of Christians and even some Christian leaders share their weakness in that way. But let me say this. Your true weakness will never be a selling point for your own personal brand. (laughs) Or brand of self. So you can curate yourself and make yourself look a little more authentic. That's not the weakness Jesus is talking about here. The weakness he's talking about here is the things your family know about that you wish they would forget they knew about you. Or the things you would never share at a job interview. That's what he's talking about when he says weak and burdened. And if you haven't shared your deepest, 
darkest sin and weakness with someone you can trust in our church or in your life, I encourage you to pray about doing so. It'll free you. It'll free you. And it'll allow the other person to see God work in you. And, and more than likely, they'll say, yeah, I've struggled with that too. And you will experience when you do that, Jesus' gentle and tender grace. I promise that. It's a freeing, it's a scary thing, but it's a freeing thing. Well, that's our fourth question. Let's look at the fifth in these last couple minutes. What about this easy yoke for the last question? The easy yoke, it's an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp, right? Or hot ice. I don't know, something like, I forget, there's, I'm sure there's lots of others, but jumbo shrimp's the one that always pops into my mind. An easy yoke? So we come to Jesus as coming to him, repentance and faith and over and ongoing, we said to answer question four. But how do we grow as disciples after Jesus' heart? That's question five. How do we grow as disciples after Jesus' heart? Voskamp went on in that story about the professor. Remember, he said, we just think of the, only the judicial side, not the being and heart of Jesus. She said, if there's a deep disconnect in the church between what we believe and how we actually live, it's because we've forgotten the way to live actually and intimately connected to God. Our walk will only match our talk, she said, when we live attached to his heart. So how do we connect with Jesus' heart? How do we see our walk match up more with our talk? Here's the answer. We yoke ourselves to him and with him. We yoke ourselves. It's really strange, as I said, kind of an oxymoron, but when Jesus calls you to rest, when he calls you to rest, he calls us to take on a yoke. Now, some of you have been on a farm long enough that maybe you remember someone using one of these, actually. Possibly, maybe. I see, a, I see a yes out there. I mean, does this make sense? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It would have made much more sense if Jesus said, I'll give you rest. Here's a warm blanket and a piece that passes understanding, right? But that's not what he says. He says, a yoke. Yes, yeah, sign me up for that, please. I'm ready for that. Are you? But here's the truth. Here's the truth. The culture thinks that people can actually live an unyoked life. Everyone is yoked to something. Every human in this world, all six, whatever, seven billion, everyone is yoked to something. You're yoked to something today, if not Jesus. You're yoked to something. There's no yokeless option in life. You're yoked to something. You're attached to something around your neck, whether it's Jesus or something else. There's no yokeless option. Everyone's yoked to something, career, family, an addiction, money, religion, morality, pornography, a pop star or movie star. Everybody's yoked to something. There's no yokeless option. What are you yoked to? What are you yoked to? It's something. And you've put the yoke around your neck. <laughs> What is it? What if we heard Jesus' words like this? Take my yoke upon you. As opposed to the billion other options you can yoke yourself to in life. Take my yoke upon you. 
A yoke was used to put a heavy burden of the plow onto the oxen's shoulders, as you see here, or actually the poorest people in the ancient Near East in Jesus' time. To yoke something on your own back would be to carry it along a wooden beam. It would be to put a heavy burden on your back. It would be back-breaking work. It implies sweat and hard labor with aching muscles and tendons bearing a heavy load. Jesus doesn't say life will be easy or that there won't be a yoke. Here, though, a yoke represents someone's rule, though, or authority, as Jesus says it. In the same passage, we know that because Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me. Be an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, one who's continually connected to Jesus. It's not just come to Jesus and you've got your fire insurance. No, no, no. It's come to Jesus and stay with Jesus, be yoked to Jesus, learn from Jesus, be an apprentice of Jesus. But if he is gentle and lowly, wouldn't that be the best kind of authority to place yourself under? Because you're going to be yoked to something. And career, family, sex, addiction, those are nasty taskmasters. That's a great place to be yoked because he's gentle and lowly. But why is it light? that's That's a hard question. Why is the yoke light? I mean, the same Jesus says in another place, take up your cross and follow me, which is a heavy burden. How can this be? How can it be? The same Jesus says, take up your cross, and yet this is a light yoke. To follow your own way, yoke to some created thing, is the absolute true quickest way to become exhausted because that thing you yoke yourself to will never fulfill on what you hope it will. Never. Even think good things like family or sex that God created or food that he created. Even good things will never fulfill. And so that's the quickest way to become exhausted is yoke yourself to something other than Jesus that's created. Pulling along that career by yourself or parenting on your own strength. Jesus' yoke is light, not because he promises our life will go greater. He says, hey, you know what? You keep a 50%. I'll keep up 50%. And as long as you keep up your 50%, I'll keep up my 50%. That's not why either. It's light because he promises to bear our load and to be there walking with us through it. Last week, I re-injured a shoulder injury I had had, and it was way worse than the original injury. The original injury, which is so ridiculous, I got it from trying to swat a wasp with a dish towel. That's really manly. (laughs) I don't want you to see a picture of that. There's no video out there of that. But I did a big, you know, it's like one of those big throwing motions. I did as hard as I could last summer and something popped in there. And I got through it and did some exercises, but I re-injured it this week. And I didn't actually even know how I did it. All of a sudden, it was just Wednesday. I couldn't even lift my arm, actually. It was dead weight. My own arm was too great a burden for me. Not a yoke. My own arm was too great a burden that's supposed to use to be carried burdens. So much so that one of our elders noticed at Wednesday night that I was using my off arm to move my left arm. He's like, yeah, it must really hurt. I saw you using your off arm to move your arm. And I think that night as I was laying down in bed, and it was 
excruciating. The Lord connected my thoughts to what Jesus' shoulders must have felt like on the cross as I could feel the pain in my shoulder. Bearing the weight of his own body as his muscles and sinews and ligaments were probably tearing under the strain of his body weight. But that was the only part of it, wasn't it? When he bore a burden. He also bore the weight of God's judgment in that moment on his shoulders. That was a yoke. That was a yoke. That was a heavy burden. When he bore your sin, your shame, your suffering, your brokenness, your messiness, whatever you want to call it, on the cross. The sin of the world was placed on his shoulders. The judgment of the Father was placed on his shoulders. And the Father didn't carry the yoke with Jesus in that moment, did he? What did he do? He turned his back on him. Jesus carried a yoke and had the Father turn his back on him so that in every moment of life, he could bear your yoke with you. Isn't that incredible? The shoulders that bore that weight for you. And that is why you can trust him to bear your burden because there was a moment where he carried the yoke of the world and didn't have anybody partnered with him. Didn't have anybody yoked to him. That's why you can trust him when you're yoked to him because he's already borne so much for you. That's what Jesus has promised us here. He's gentle and lowly. His relationship is more than the cosmic court of law. It's an intimate yoking. It's a burden-bearing relationship. He wants your burdens. He wants your deepest sins. He wants your weariness. He wants your exhaustion with life. He wants it. He wants to carry it for you. But you have to come to him over and over again. He won't take the weight away we bear in this life, but he bore our eternal weight and he will bear our temporal weight with us today. So come to him, all who are weary, burdened, and heavy laden, and find rest for your souls in the heart of Jesus. You pray with me? Jesus, help us understand today a bit more what it means that you, you bore the weight of the world. You bore the sin of the world in a yoke without a partner to carry it. That is assurance, Lord. That is a, a God we can trust that took a heavy yoke way before we, you ever asked us to bear a yoke. But you did it on your own. So Jesus, help us trust that your heart is gentle and lowly. Yes, it means trusting, because once we yoke ourselves to you, we're connected. So where you go, we will go, as connected to that yoke. But we can trust your heart because of what you did for us, because of the burden you bore. Spirit, reveal your gentleness and lowliness to us today. And maybe someone in here, even for the first time, someone who uses a lot of makeup to cover up life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close by singing the song, Come You Sinners. I think the, the words fit so well coming right out of that. Come you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Those words describe us today. Will you stand with me as we sing?
Do you think there's going to be a more perfect song to fit the end of that message? Come to Jesus. Let go of the other trust. Place yourself in him. I pray you do that today. Let go of those other yokes. Those things that are, seem so important and matter so much to us that maybe could be just a little less important if we're yoked to Jesus. And may we each become gentle and lowly through finding that in Jesus' heart. Like I said, I'm going to jump out today pretty quick, just to be courteous, just to be careful, want to see how this week goes and what happens with me. I'm going to put this on and probably head out that way right after. But since I won't be here, I need your help. Find a new person today. Say hi to them. I won't be out there to do that. And Jack Rance can't do all of them. We know he loves, (laughs) he he greets everyone. I'm sorry to embarrass him. I love that about Jack. We should model that about Jack, his gentle and lowliness as he loves it as we come to our church. Find somebody new. Greet him today. Make them feel that welcome and love and gentleness and acceptance of Jesus. We have to model that and share that um, if that's who he is with us. We have a new benediction today. It's based off Psalm 23, so let's read it together slowly and carefully. It's brand new, but let's do it. May the Lord shepherd you and make you lie down in green pastures. May he restore your soul and lead you in paths of righteousness. May he be with you and comfort you. May he anoint your head with oil and bestow his goodness and mercy on you all the days of your life. Donuts and coffee out there, great fellowship. Ask somebody what touched the, how God touched them in the sermon. Take the conversation there. Have a blessed Sunday. Hopefully we'll be back with you next week without COVID.